This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Daniel Shamovitz. Daniel is the Dean of the Faculty of Life Sciences at Tel Aviv University. He joined me via Skype to talk about his book, What a Plant Knows, A Field Guide to the Senses, which is out through Scribe Publications. And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. I'm absolutely delighted now to have with me all the way from Tel Aviv via Skype, Daniel Chamovitz. He is the director of the Manor Centre for Plant Biosciences at Tel Aviv University. And he is also the Dean of the Faculty of Life Sciences at Tel Aviv University. And he has written a book called What a Plant Knows, A Field Guide to to the senses. And uh, the first edition came out a few years ago, but it's been updated and was released in Australia here by Scribe Publications at the end of last year. So I'm really pleased now to have Daniel with me. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you and uh, and also via Skype so we can have a bit more of an intimate, longer chat about this book because um, there is just so much in it in terms of the scholarly scientific research that you are citing. But before we get to other people's research and the key tenets of this book, I'd love to hear about your interest in plants and the senses particularly and where that interest, particularly your research, started. Well, actually, I wasn't interested in plant senses at all from a <laughs> to be completely honest in the beginning, I was actually in my early on in my research, I was looking at studying something that would be completely specific for plants, have no connection to human biology whatsoever. This is probably because my father's a physician, my sister's a physician, four uncle, three uncles are physicians, three cousins are physicians in my family. And I was trying to definitely not have anything to do with uh, human biology. That's fair enough. So, yeah, so in my research, I was actually studying. Um, how plants respond to light. And, you know, while if we, we enjoy going to the beach and getting a suntan, we don't really change our shape in response to light. Um, and plants, if you can remember from, you know, an experiment you might have done in third grade or maybe your kids do, where, you know, if you put a seedling, a, plant, a, seed, a pea seed in a closet, it grows long and spindly in the dark. And when you put it in the light, then its leaves open and it turns green. So that light is sort of like the signal that completely changes a plant's shape. And so I was very interested in how a plant can, can do this. And that's a very plant-specific process. And so this was about 20, 25 years ago. And when I cloned a group of genes, that at the time when we cloned them, these were genes that were specific just to the plant kingdom, um, which made sense since I thought that a plant response to light would be specific just to plants. But then when they started clone, um, sequencing the human genome, they found out that these same eight genes that I had found in plants, which help them differentiate between light and dark, are also present in all humans, which was a real kick in the pants. Because, you know, why should humans have these plant genes? And I wasn't quite interested in understanding anything to do with human biology. But that actually made me think that maybe my whole paradigm was mistaken, that there's a lot more unity in biology than I had actually considered. And that if plants and animals share the same genes that help them differentiate between light and dark. Actually, we now know that some of these genes in, uh, in people are not only involved in things like um, cell division and cancer, but also in regulation of uh, the circadian clock of our daily day-night cycles. So if 
plants and animals contain very similar genes, um, maybe the connection was a lot closer than we thought, which made me start thinking that maybe we need to start looking about how plants sense their, or considering that plants actually do sense their environment in the same way that we do. And when you start looking more closely in the literature, you see that plants are incredibly complex organisms. They really are attuned to the light environment. We can say they see that they actually smell their neighbors or they, they're sensitive to chemicals that their neighbors give off. So we could say that they smell them. That's what smelling is. You know, we've all seen Venus fly traps. They know, and I'm using air quotes here, when the fly is on them. And actually all plants know when they're being touched. So it was interesting to try to figure out what are the similarities, what are the differences, and how a plant senses the world um, as opposed to how we sense the world. Indeed, and that does remind me of um, part of the chapter, I think it was in What a Plant Hears, where you were talking about how, and correct me if I pronounce this wrongly, but the Arabidopsis um, Arabidopsis, sure. Yeah, and how they sequenced that plant's genome. And it was the first plant to have the full sequencing done. And could you expound a bit upon how similar that plant is to some of the other genomes that we now know of properly? Sure. So in the year 2000, Arabidopsis, it's just a small mustard plant. It's sort of like the the fruit fly of the plant world. This was a multinational effort. Some of the work actually being done in Australia also sequenced the plant genome. Um, this was a couple of years before the human genome, right after the yeast genome. And all of these genomic studies were, were fascinating because we found out that a huge, you know, a huge percentage of the plant and human genomes are homologous, what we call overlapping. We could say they have exactly very similar genes. Now, in retrospect, this makes sense because two billion years ago, plants and animals evolved from the same single cell organism, which then split off into two lineages. So two billion years ago, we and trees have a common ancestor. And so the same genes that are needed for a a cell to survive would be found both in animals and in plants. So when they were sequencing the Arabidopsis genome, they found out that Arabidopsis has the gene for breast cancer, BRCA, or Arabidopsis has a gene for cystic fibrosis, Um, or Arabidopsis has the gene for deafness. At the same way as, like I just said a few minutes ago, that humans have the same genes that allow a plant to know if it's in the light or the dark. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that Arabidopsis gets breast cancer or that it can breathe and get cystic fibrosis. You know, the names of genes are a bit misnomers. We call it the breast cancer gene, not because it's there to cause breast cancer. BRCA causes breast cancer when there's a mutation in it and it doesn't work properly. The gene for deafness causes deafness when the gene for myosin has a mutation in it, and so the hairs in our ears don't grow properly. But under normal conditions, these genes have important roles in how cells develop and divide, and plant cells develop and divide, and so of course they have the same genes. Indeed. And so can I understand that when, for example, there's a mutation in the BRCA gene in a plant, what happens to that plant or does nothing happen? Well, what happens to the plant is that, um, so this doesn't happen in nature, of course, because that plant would die. But when we do it in the laboratory, a mutation in the BRCA gene will cause that the cell loses its ability to fix itself. The DNA can no longer uh, fix damage and actually the, the plants die. They don't develop cancer, of course, because they don't have breasts. Yes, exactly. Uh, but the cells themselves 
no longer can survive, and then they die. Mm. From that point of view, plants can be a great model system for studying human disease, because at the basic cellular level, the same mechanisms are at work. Some of the research in my lab right now, you know, we're studying, you've probably heard, you know, these, what we call them in Hebrew grandmother stories that like broccoli and cauliflower can protect you from cancer. Yes, yes. You know, part of, so, you know, like why would, why do plants make these chemicals that affect human biology? You know, like even aspirin coming from, uh, is also a plant product. And what we found is that these same chemicals, which when we give them as dietary supplements, which can kill cancer cells or in laboratories, in the plant, they also have a very important role in regulating how the cells divide and how the plant responds to damage, for example. So the same chemicals that affect the plant affect us. So in your view then, and perhaps even in your own laboratory or at the Tel Aviv University itself, are you seeing research and science moving into this, the study of plants to be able to illuminate these major issues and diseases that we're suffering from, such as cancer? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess, you know, probably some of the most uh, popular research going on, in, at least in the press, you know, is work going on with uh, medicinal cannabis. You know, so why would, you know, why, why do we get stoned? Sorry to put it that way, you know. How does, how does marijuana affect us? It's because in our own brains, we have cannabinoid receptors and plants make these chemicals and they also affect plant biology. You know, they don't, plants don't go around making all these chemicals just so that we can enjoy them. They're important for how the plant grows also. Yes, indeed. So we've perhaps had a very human-centric focus until now or even perhaps earlier in thinking that we're the centre of the universe. Yeah, it's a little it's a little disconcerting to figure out that we're not. <laughs> it is. And it is uh, World Environment Day coming up and that's a really important time to reflect on the fact that we aren't all that important in the scheme of things and perhaps won't even be here or will at least be outlived by plants such as the ones we're talking about. So it is important to talk about them. The, the, this whole research, aside from being fascinating, is important for our for our survival because everything we do is dependent on plants. You know, right now we're both breathing plant products. I'm wearing a plant product, cotton. You know, I drank several plant products this morning before the interview. We all ate plant products and I burned dead plants in my car driving to my office. You know, so we're completely, completely dependent on plants. Whereas, you know, they could get along quite well, if not even better without us. Yes, indeed. And uh, I want to head into now how you open this book in the first chapter, which is about what a plant sees, because I think that is one of the most um, illuminating and perhaps to me fascinating. No, No, exactly. (laughs) Pun intended here, maybe. But I really want to talk about how you describe what they're seeing, because you're not saying that they are exactly the same as humans, just as in each chapter, you're not trying to infer that plants have the same level of intelligence or the same sensory mechanisms as humans. That said, there are many similarities which you draw out between the human experience and the plant experience. But when it comes to seeing, you write... Plants see if you come near them. They know when you stand over them. They even know if you're wearing a blue or a red shirt. They know if you've painted your house or if you've moved their pots from one side of the living room to the other. Plants monitor their visible environment 
all the time. And you cite the research that initially looked into how on earth plants can actually see in some way these kinds of movements, colours, light, darkness. And I'd love to hear from you how that research evolved and what you found particularly intriguing about it. I love that you used the word how the research evolved because it actually began with Charles Darwin in, in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, some of Darwin's last research for the last 10, 20 years of his, uh, of his life, he was studying how plants respond to the environment. And he wrote a book called The Power of Movement in Plants, uh, which was published in 1880, which we actually still teach from, where he describes how a plant would bend to light that was so dim that as he wrote in the book that I couldn't even read the, the hands on the clock in my hand. So, you know, he was talking about how plants bend towards light. And we've all seen this on the plants that we put on our windowsill, how they'll bend towards where the sun is and away from the room. So this is research that actually started with Charles Darwin. So what we now know is, though, that plants, of course, they bend to the light, but they actually differentiate between colors. So, for example, if in the laboratory, you can actually do this at home with cellophane. If you put red light from a flashlight on one side of a plant, on blue light on the other side of the plant, it will bend to the blue light and not to the red light. So just like us, a plant can differentiate between colors. And um, this actually makes sense because why does a plant need to be so sensitive to light? Because it needs to get to, to the sun or to the open light in order to do photosynthesis, which is the power for, that enables it to make sugar, to grow. Plants don't eat. They make their own sugar and from there making their own proteins. So a plant has to know, and I'm using air quotes again, whether it's shaded or not. How does it know if it's shaded? It can actually measure the amount of red light versus the amount of what's called far red light. That's way off the spectrum that we can't see. If it's shaded by another leaf, there's very little red light hitting it. So it moves away to find more red light. If it's you know, completely shaded, it'll look for blue light to bend to get to another type of light. It needs to know how long the day is. So it knows, for example, what season it is in the year. Now it's time to flower. Now it's not time to flower. You don't want your plants flowering in winter or else, you know, the snow will cause the flowers to die. So the plant is exquisitely sensitive to the light environment. It can see, again, with air quotes, things that we're blind to. It, it senses UV light, which we don't respond to, and far red light and everything in between. If in your eyes you have four different types of proteins, what we call photoreceptors, which enable you to see the blue, red, green, and black and white light, plants have upwards of 13 different photoreceptors that allow it to see a whole spectrum of light that we were blind to. It is really fascinating to think about that. And I was particularly interested in some of the work you were referencing about plants and how they perceive red light versus far red light and what kind of mechanisms plants are triggered by when it comes to either seeing the red light or a far red light and in what order or at what point. And I'd love to hear yep. more about that. Well, let's see if we could get this uh, over the radio without me. I'm using my hands here in the air and people can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so plants need to use red and far red light as a sort of, let's call it a molecular switch to know how long the day is. So, you know, there are certain plants that will only flower in the spring and other plants which flower in the fall. So if we talk about a plant that flowers in the spring, the way it knows 
that it's the spring is it knows that the days are getting longer and the nights are getting shorter. And what happens if you can picture the sunrise, you know, the sunrise starts as a dark purple and then gets brighter and brighter. So as it gets brighter towards the red, this protein called phytochrome is turned on and it says, yes, the day has started. Okay, now you have the whole length of the day. Now you can picture sunset. You're going from white to yellow to red to purple to very far red, which we can't see. And that far red light takes the same protein and turns it off. It's like a switch that's being turned on and off by red and far red light. Red light turns it on, far red light turns it off. And that's the way it knows how long the night is and how long the day is. It's amazing to think about that. And what's also really amazing is one of those discoveries which you talk about in terms of where exactly this perception or at least where the seeing mechanism is within the plant itself. Yeah, so the, the, the sensory mechanisms in plants are distributed rather than organ-based sort of like with us. So if we're talking about what a plant sees, what it sees with red and far red light is in its leaves. And actually there, so the red light, let's say the leaf will get the red light at the right time of the year. And that will then send a signal all the way up to the bud and say, okay, start making a flower. You know, the same bud, which had only been making leaves now completely changes its identity and now starts making a flower. And that actually is a signal transferring through the plant from the leaf all the way up to the top. But if you're looking at what makes a plant bend, there what's sensing it is the very, very tip. And then it sends a signal down the stem telling it to bend. So what we're seeing here is actually sort of similar to what goes on with us. You know, if I would throw a ball to you right now and hopefully that you would catch it, you would sense it with your eyes and respond with your hand. Here what's going on with the plant, it's like sensing in the leaf and responding in the bud or sensing at the tip and responding in the stem. Mm, yes, indeed. And just so people can visualise it because they may um, be struggling in this medium we call radio. It's great though because this book does have many illustrations so I'm sure people can look through that um, at a later time. But in terms of if we're visualising the seedling tip or the plant tip, could you describe really where that is in relation to the branches? The, the easiest to do would be to take like a young seedling or even, so if you have a young seedling that's just coming out of your pot, the tip of that seedling is what would be sensing the blue light. But when you look how the plant bends, and this is an experiment we can all do at home, it's not the tip that bends. You go down a few centimeters, and that's the part that's bending towards the light. So if, like, if you would put your hand straight up and down, the tip of your middle finger is sensing, but it's your wrist which is bending. That's an excellent way to describe it. Thank you. And I want to head now into some of the other senses and to um, explore more about this. Uh, there's so much research that has been done that's really opened my eyes through reading this. You talk about smelling and you also talk about tasting, hearing. I want to talk a bit about smelling and tasting. Both of those things are quite interrelated in humans. But in terms of plants, you write that plants emit odours that animals and human beings are attracted to. And of course, we could all relate to that smelling beautiful flowers. Roses have a beautiful scent, of course. But plants can smell themselves and they can smell other plants around them within a certain radius. Can you talk a bit about what the reason is behind that or why it is so useful for a plant to be able to smell? 
plants use smell as a form of communication. This started with research um, around 1980, um, mainly in a couple laboratories. One person I want to mention was a graduate student at the time, was a uh, scientist named Ian Baldwin. And what he noticed, what this was at Cornell University, was that when a leaf of a tree, let's say a, a willow tree, is attacked by beetles or any other insect, the neighboring leaves of a neighboring tree then start making chemicals which make those leaves unpalatable to insects, so the insects can't eat them. And his hypothesis was, is that the damaged leaf is giving off a chemical into the air, which then the neighboring leaves take up and then use that as a signal to start protecting themselves. And he actually proved that experimentally, that's what's going on. Now, this is a great, you know, this leads to incredible anthropomorphism in that one tree is telling another tree, oh, watch out, save yourself, very altruistic behavior. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have plant psychologists, so we can't really ask the tree what it's intending to do. Yes, if, but, um, they're, if they're doing it out of their goodwill or if it's just a, yeah. a self-protection mechanism. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, models in evolution which show that altruism is a, is a pretty good strategy for helping in general. But it could also be that one branch of one tree is trying to signal to other leaves, other branches on the same tree. And then it's basically the tree helping itself. And the neighbors are just sort of eavesdropping, listening in. But so this olfactory, these volatile chemicals through the air, is a great way of communication because it's pretty rapid um, from one to the other. And actually, you know, we also communicate through smell. Literature is filled with ideas such as the smell of fear was in the air. You know, we, you know, the idea of pheromones, we give off these smells to communicate physiological states. Or, you know, like when you're having a barbecue outside, whether you're a vegan and it's tofu or there's a lot of meat on there and you start salivating. It's not that you've chosen to start salivating. It's that you've gotten a signal through the air and that's letting you know, okay, food's around the corner. Exactly. And you do talk about um, some of those human examples like that, obviously, pheromones are very important in terms of uh, attractions between humans, but also you know, we give off smells woman to woman so that, as you say, menstrual cycles end up becoming timed in the same fashion. Everyone's um, happening at the same time, which I'm sure many women could relate to in a household. Yeah. And, and I don't think this is a choice. No, <laughs> definitely not. It's not that practical. Yeah. In terms of the, the smell that, let's use your example that you were providing with the beetles attacking the tree, what is the mechanism that the plant then goes into that does protect them against these uh, insects? So what happens is that uh, once the, the, the tissue is damaged, the plant gives off into the air a volatile chemical, which is dissolved in the air. It's actually a, a plant hormone which then gets sucked up by a neighboring leaf. And that hormone is then a signal for the plant that goes through a whole system to start making other chemicals. And you might know such names as tannins. Those are actually the red, the, some of the, the flavors in wines, which are repugnant to other uh, insects. So just like we have hormones in our body, which then tell other cells to start making other proteins, the same thing happens in plants. There are plant hormones, which are signals for the cell to start making a whole list of chemicals. Indeed, and you also highlight salicylic acid being sure. a defense hormone, and, and we do actually use that acid in products ourselves. Yeah, so yeah, this, is, this is the, 
So plants make a hormone. One of them is called salicylic acid, which is a defense hormone. That lets a plant know when it's been attacked by bacteria and viruses. Actually, plants can differentiate between being attacked by an insect, they'll make a chemical called jasmonic acid, or if they've been attacked by bacteria, where they'll make a hormone called salicylic acid. And so when a plant is sick, so to say, it makes salicylic acid. Now, interestingly, if humans take salicylic acid, we know that as aspirin, and it helps us combat illness also. So these same plant hormones also affect human biology. It is really very amazing to think. And it's true that we're all so interconnected and really dependent on each other in a way. I want to head into one of the facts that I bolded because I was just really, it struck me as quite amazing and makes total sense now that I am aware of it. When you moved into your chapter around what a plant tastes, you write that plants even have their own form of sweating called transpiring. A plant loses more water on a hot day than a cold one because because evaporating water from its leaves cools it off. And you use this great example, which really is fascinating. You say, did you ever wonder why natural grass never gets hot, even on a sunny day, while artificial grass can burn your feet? Yeah, we, we, we take that for granted that grass is always cool. We do. And, and the reason that the grass is always cool is because plants are amazing organisms, just like us. They have to maintain a constant body temperature in order to survive. You know, if a, plant, if a blade of grass heated up to 40 degrees in the summer, it would die, but it doesn't. And the way it maintains its temperature is by, for lack of a better term, sweating, transpiring. Water evaporates out of the leaf surface and evaporation is that type of uh, air conditioning. It cools it off. Dew in some plants, sometimes dew is, condensation water from the atmosphere onto the grass but sometimes dew is water that came out of the plant but did not yet evaporate because it was uh, not hot enough yet so sometimes we do see water coming out of the plants and to put this all in a bit of perspective we have many oak trees here in australia they're clearly not a native tree to australia but you say that an oak tree transpires yeah, we took your eucalyptus and brought it to israel it's definitely not native here either <laughs> how many are there over there Oh, huge amounts. We brought them to dry up swamps. Wow, that's awesome. I do love eucalyptus trees here and, and we talk about them quite a lot because they're vital for our own ecosystems and to you know maintain our waterways. But you do see the odd oak tree, particularly in the botanic gardens and those areas where um, we have a great deal of English or British influence. And you write that an oak tree transpires more than 100 gallons of water on a hot day, but obviously we can't see such is the scale um, of the water that it is losing. What does it then do to replace it? So then it, it sucks up water, it absorbs water from its roots. And so its roots are searching for water all the time, growing deeper or wider, looking for sources of water. And what a plant will do, a tree will do if it doesn't have water, now there's a problem, you know, how am I going to survive? And so the first thing it actually does is it stops, it'll, it'll wilt, the leaves will sort of bend around each other. You know, you've seen leaves when they wilt, they bend around. And the reason they can bend around each other is that then when the leaf will lose less water, because you have this area in the tube where the leaf has bent around, mm. where you have a high level of humidity, so you'll have less water being evaporated. The tree does this actively. It's not a passive response. It's trying to save water. 
Yes, it's a protective mechanism and it's also a very interesting mechanism under the ground. You say that plants in the beginning of a drought often increase root growth towards deep soil layers, searching for other new water sources and also that they stop the growth of shallow roots where the soil is driest. Just think of the complexity going on here. This oak tree now knows, it senses that there's less water available. Um, Maybe the temperature is going up on the leaves, there's less water pressure. And so now signals are going to have to signal from the leaf to the root. And now it'll start saying, start growing your, your roots deeper. But, you know, there's often not water on the top. That's where, you know, the, the soil is getting dry. So I'm not going to grow roots towards the side. I'm just going to go deep looking for groundwater. So there's going to be communication all the time within the root system and then up to the leaves and the trunk in order to yield an organism, a tree that's completely adapted to its environment. There's signals being transported all the time back and forth, communication saying, I have enough water, I don't have enough water, get me more, get me less. Now you can open your leaf, you can keep going and do photosynthesis. It's really quite amazing. It is, and you cite research from Novoplansky in terms of the fact that there is a relay signaling going on often between plants as well. So this is, again, we get back to the idea of plants communicate with each other, which is a little difficult for us to accept or to not to anthropomorphize too much. He did this great experiment. You know, if you could just picture taking like a tomato plant and taking its roots and splitting them between two pots and then take another plant and split it again between two plots so that in one pot you have roots of two plants. You're sort of like making a daisy chain of plants. And what he found out is that if you would stop watering the first pot, the second, third, or fourth, or fifth pot, the plants in it would respond as if drought was starting. They were preparing themselves for an encroaching drought, which shows that the roots are exchanging information about how much water there are in other parts of the same root system. And this is a way for a plant to prepare itself, so to speak, um, so it won't be caught off guard by a huge drought. Yes, and in terms of the plant species, do they differentiate between each other in that action? There are some plant responses which are general, and there are some plant responses which are specific. For example, like when fruits ripen, a plant can't tell whether it's an an orange fruit is ripening or an avocado or a banana, which is why you could take an avocado and a banana, put them next to each other, and you can help the avocado ripen faster because... The, the ripening hormone is uh, universal in uh, plant biology. But there are certain plants which can differentiate, and we don't know how yet, between themselves and other plants. So let's say roots are growing in the soil, and roots of the same plant or two brothers meet each other. They'll meet and then grow away from each other so as not to bother themselves. But if it meets a plant of another species, It'll go and attack those roots and try to outgrow them. We don't know yet how they differentiate between self and non-self or differentiate between species. But of course, it's going to have to be some type of chemical communication. I remember, um, I can't remember exactly which species it was, but you did also write about a plant that it separates from itself and then it can't identify that in fact it was the exact same plant. It starts to think that itself is a different plant when it becomes physically separated. Yeah, yeah, this is a sad story to a certain extent. You know, it's like 
When do you forget your family? It's a plant that take it and separate it into two root, different root systems. In the beginning, it knows that it was once the same plant. But then after a certain amount of time, it forgets and then starts attacking itself. You know, so you can really make a great novel about that. I'd love to head into the area of feeling and then um, we'll move into something a slightly more controversial. But in terms of how plants feel, you do make some really important distinctions between how humans feel and how plants feel and the difference between, I guess, a sensation or a feeling of touch versus a feeling of pain as well. But Plants do know or can feel when a human has touched them and they respond in a range of ways. And it's quite surprising that it really can affect their growth and their future when a person or another element has touched a plant. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it's surprising at first. So if you could just picture a tree that's like on the top of a mountain. You know, often if you're like if you're hiking and you've gone to the top of a hill, or top of a mountain, you'll see a tree that will have a very thick trunk, very few branches, um, very few leaves because it's really exposed to the wind that's been shaking. it. And, you know, you think uh, intuitively that the wind has really you know ruined this tree. And if you go down in a valley and see the exact same species, it could be very tall and majestic with many branches, lots of leaves, a very beautiful tree. But. It's not that the wind destroyed that tree. It's that the tree knew that it was, there was a lot of wind and needed to survive. Let me take it from a different point of view. The big difference, or maybe the largest difference between plants and animals, is that plants are literally rooted in one place. They can't move. They can't escape. You know, when animals, humans, are in a situation that they're not happy about, what do we do? We run away. We escape. You know, if it's you know too cold, we can in Australia you could go up north. If it's too hot, you could go south. If there's not enough water around, you could go to a place where there's water. We you know we migrate in search of mates, in search of food, in search of temperature. That's a pretty easy strategy. It doesn't take much biology. But a tree, a plant, can't move. It has to survive maybe minus 20 in the winter, plus 40 in the summer, all in the same place. And the way it can survive is by sensing the environment and then adapting its biology, changing its growth. So if we go back to being felt, to feeling, a tree knows or it feels that its branches are being shook by the wind. And so it changes its shape. It says, I'm not going to make many branches, but I'm going to make a very thick trunk. I'm going to make fewer leaves. I'll make much larger roots. And this will enable me to maintain my position and live rather than being blown away and die. So plants have to know if they're being touched. They don't know that a gardener is touching, but they know that something is moving them. Mm. And you also cite research from Janet Brahm from Rice University and talk about the fact that just by touching an Aridopsis leaf can result in rapid changes in the genetic makeup of the plant itself. Yeah, this is you know completely surprising. She wasn't even actually looking for this originally, but what she found out was that when you just touch a plant, a whole slew of genes get turned on in response to this touch. And these are these are the genes that then allow the plant to say, "Okay, I'll make myself shorter. I'm not going to make as many branches." These are the signals going back and forth. But what was really cool in her research and has implications for biology in general, some of the genes that she discovered 
are the same genes that are involved in how our nerves and muscles communicate when they are touched. You know, if you could picture, you know, like a fly has landed on your arm and then a si electrical signal is going to your brain, and then another electrical signal goes to a muscle and you try to hit the fly and you usually miss it, right? But um, that electrical signal is propagated through uh, ions like calcium and sodium and another protein called calmodulin. And these same proteins and similar ions are involved or activated when a plant is moved either by our hand or by the wind. It's such a dynamic, constantly evolving biological situation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, plants are incredibly, incredibly sensitive and incredibly complex in their responses. There's a lot of complexity that we don't understand still. And you, obviously, there are a lot of areas where research has evolved, as you've said, from the 19th century. Darwin and his son have been looking at a lot of these areas for some time. And we've seen, obviously, many scientists since find out more and more about these issues and areas of the senses and what plants can feel and smell. But I would love to hear a bit about something which is really part of the reason why this book um, was updated is that it's an evolving area of science in terms of what plants can hear and uh, and it's certainly an area that's contested in science uh, but you do highlight some of the things that we can be somewhat certain of based on the very early science that's uh, evolving at the moment in that area. So when I started giving popular lectures about, you know, how a plant responds to the environment. People were shocked that plants can differentiate between red and blue light. They were just amazed that plants communicate with smells. But on the other hand, everyone was convinced that plants have a musical taste, that they prefer classical music to rock music. And if you look through the literature up till the past few years, well, there's thousands of articles showing how a plant responds to its environment. There are absolutely none, or maybe three or four, that show how a plant responds to music or other sounds. And in all of those three or four papers, for some reason, the plant grew better in the music that the scientists preferred. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah so I, which I think shows that we're better gardeners when we listen to music that we like. And so in the first version of, edition of the book six years ago, I concluded quite clearly that plants are deaf. But I left open a caveat that I'm ready for, my, for this to be changed. And this is important to differentiate between science and pseudoscience. And I think in the popular culture today, we sometimes get them confused, you know, especially in, in media and, and, and things we could find on the internet with you know, completely bizarre claims of, of, of studies that have been done. You know, a scientist, and all of my colleagues will agree with me, is completely ready and happy or excited when our findings are proven to be false. We're always ready to the possibility that what we've shown is wrong, if data will support that. A pseudoscientist won't let good data get in the way of what they know to be true. And so over the past five years, there's been a trickling of studies coming out that show that plants may respond to sound. Now, this isn't plants responding to music. Now, from an evolutionary point of view, the idea that plants have musical taste makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, since we've been listening to recorded music for uh, you know, 100 years. 
So uh, obviously a plant shouldn't care if it's classical music or rock and roll. But if a plant is to be listening to something, we need to figure out what would be ecologically relevant, what would be evolutionarily relevant for a plant to listen to. And there are a couple of studies that have just started to come out, one of which I'm involved in, that show, for example, that maybe plants hear the sound of insects. And that would make actually a lot of sense because if a plant is around a pollinator, it should maybe be doing all it can to attract that pollinator to come to it, to come to that flower so that it can make new seeds. Now, these are not trivial experiments. It's much easier to play a plant, you know, Led Zeppelin and see how it responds. But how do you play back the sound of, a, of wings of a moth versus wings of a, a bumblebee? Mm. You know, these are very difficult experiments to do. But we do have um, data now that shows that at least one type of plant called the evening primrose can differentiate between the sound of a pollinator and the sound of a non-pollinator. They're different wavelengths. And when it hears a pollinator, it starts making more nectar or better nectar to attract it to come to pollinate the flower. There's another group of studies that have been done primarily coming out of a group, in, starting with a group in Italy of Stefano Mancuso, which was coming up with the idea that maybe roots can listen to or respond to the sound of running water. That would make actually a lot of sense. We talked earlier about that roots you know, probe the ground to find water. How do they have any idea where that water is? Maybe there's some type of subsonic sound wave of running water in the soil, which will attract the roots to get to it. So in the second version of the book, I've, I've admitted that I was probably wrong, and I will now accept the hypothesis that plants actually do respond to sound also. And also to make sure that um, we differentiate between sound and the vibrations that a sound can actually cause, because presumably they would also be different in terms of a plant's response. Here we're getting into a little bit of ambiguity, just like smell and taste are very similar um, senses. One is through the air and one is through dissolved chemicals in, in a liquid, but they're very similar. Hearing for us humans and touch are very similar senses also because um, hearing is basically vibrations going through the air, which our ears then are sensitive to, as opposed to being touched physically um, with an object. So here it is a form of touch, but it's a form of sensitivity to a sound wave propagating through the air and not something physically coming in contact with it. Mm, indeed. And uh, if anyone's interested in that research, you were involved in it and uh, there are quite a few great uh, scientists involved, including Professor Yossi Yovel yeah. and Dr. Yuval Sapir. So, yeah, so this, this research is actually, it shows how collaborative research is. And the, the way it started is when I was writing the first version of the book, I was talking with a colleague of mine, uh, Professor Lila Hadani. She's an, uh, a theoretical evolutionary biologist and she didn't like that I said that plants don't hear. She's the one who actually came up to me and said, you know what, you're saying that very categorically and it maybe could be that we've done the wrong experiment, we as in scientists. And so then we spent the next year trying to figure out what the right experiment would be. And that's where we teamed up with the director of our botanical garden who really understands um, large flowers and real plants, not like a plant like Arabidopsis. And Professor Yossi Ovel who is the, one of the world's premier bat biologists and has this great 
recording and playback equipment for all types of different wavelengths. And so together, the four of us came up with this experimental uh, design to test the hypothesis that a flowering plant could differentiate between the sound of a pollinator and a non-pollinator. And it all came out of a, of a coffee discussion in the hallway because my colleague didn't like my uh, categorical conclusion that plants don't hear. Mm, it just reminds me of a chat that I had a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the life of an Australian naturalist called Edith Coleman who discovered pseudocopulation in orchids. And I was just thinking, I wonder whether orchids go through any type of mechanism or system to attract insects to them so that they can engage in, in that pseudocopulation. Well, first of all, this is known for, for, for decades, plants actively attract pollinators you know we that's why they give up they, they have these incredible color arrays and actually when a, some insects see things in the flowers that we don't see we now know for example that within the petals themselves there's a gradient of heat that we can't see but some insects do which sort of is like a target saying here is where you should be coming with arrows going towards the center of the flower there are other certain plants can actually call insects or insects have learned to respond to a plant so for example if a plant is some plants like corn is being attacked by aphids they give off a chemical into the air that wasps love and they then come and eat the aphids to put then giving protection to the plant that's being attacked by the aphids there's so much there in terms of what a human eye can't see. To close out our discussion, I wanted to mention a couple of those other areas that uh, are also a bit contested but still very interesting. And uh, you talk about what a plant remembers. And <laughs> I'd love to just to hear more about how memory works because you talk about how there are, I guess, three levels that are proposed in terms of human memory and where a plant fits in with that. This is something that really gets people very upset at first because if there's something that defines us as humans, we think it's that we can remember things. But it ends up that plants and actually all organisms have memories. And plants actually have short-term memories, long-term memories, and very long-term memories that can actually go from generation to generation. You know, if I would give you my phone number right now, you know, you could keep it in your memory for a few seconds and then you would forget it. That's short-term memory. Uh, plants have a very similar short-term memory. The best example is in a Venus flytrap. You know, and we've all seen how a Venus flytrap will close as a fly walks across its open lobes. And the way it knows that the fly is in the center is that the fly or the bug or whatever is there has to touch two hairs or two like these filaments that are in the middle of the leaves. But it has to touch them within 30 seconds. If it touches them within one minute, it won't close. So there's actually a short-term memory here saying, okay, the plant remembers one hair has been touched. Now it counts up to 30. If the second hair is touched, it'll close. If not, it won't. It's sort of forgotten that the first one was touched. So that's a short-term memory. Plants have longer-term memories. So for example, of you know, you know, what's one of the things we really remember is weather. You know, oh my God, the winter of 1995 was the worst ever. Everyone, we always talk about um, uh, weather. Plants remember weather all the time. There are certain plants, such as, for example, certain types of wheat, which will only flower if it's been exposed to uh, freezing temperatures. And in, in agriculture, we could take advantage of that, that we could put the seeds in a freezer 
And then when we plant the wheat, when it gets to a certain size, it will start flowering regardless of what the temperature is outside because the plant remembers that it was once already in a cold period. So it knows that winter is already coming gone. What gets really bizarre is that plants can transfer information. It's called the memories from one generation to the next generation, such that a plant, for example, that's been exposed to a drought will yield progeny that are more resistant to drought. So it's sort of that they already know, oh, my my mother was there. I got to be ready for it myself. Um, there's some evidence that shows that they can even go down to grandchildren. So it can go one, two, three, maybe three generations. It's, 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 it's evolving research. It's called epigenetics. That's the mechanism. And what we now know that the same epigenetic mechanisms are also involved in transgenerational memories in many animals and maybe even in humans. You talk about Barbara Hone's study um, about how stressed plants make new combinations of DNA. And uh, it's really interesting to hear that because I, I was initially thinking of, are they going to be passing down something that is detrimental if they're in a situation such as a drought? But it sounds like it's actually a strength. Yeah, it's, this is a whole paradigm shift in biology in general about how we look at information, how we look at heredity, you know, you talk about, so this is non, non Mendelian heredity. This is um, epigenetic memories. You know, how, how it affects evolution is a very big question. This sort of goes back to Lamarckian evolution from the 18th century on, you know, can you have an acquired uh, characteristic? But um, this is involving whole new mechanisms of biology, which are quite complex of changing of the structure of the DNA, changing different RNA molecules, and how this information is transferred from one generation to the other. And this goes on not only in plants, I just heard a great lecture a week ago about how in a small little worm, it can pass on a memory, a neurological memory from its brain. It can be taught how to do something, and then its progeny already know how to do it because of information that was transferred from its brain to its eggs, to the next generation. But when I use the word memory, I'm not, we have to rem- to take out the anthropomorphism. I don't think like a plant yearns to be a seedling again. Oh my God, it was so great when I was a seedling. <laughs> Back in the you know, good old days. That, you know, there's no emotion involved in these memories. These are information that's necessary for survival, but they don't need a psychologist. Exactly. It's for a certain purpose. As you said, they don't have an ego or a super ego. Right, exactly. I just wanted to pick up that element about intelligence because we talk about ourselves as being, you know, these highly intelligent species. As, but as you've said earlier on, we've really sprung from the same cell and there are many similarities in terms of our DNA. But in terms of talking about plants, are we sometimes um, limited, I guess, in our imagination or our understanding of what intelligence is? Well, can I tell a story about my wife? Yes. So when I was writing the first version of the book, I started dealing with this question of intelligence. And there are a lot of philosophers or some plant biologists who like to you know, talk about plant intelligence. And my wife's PhD was in psychology and about multiple intelligences. And she looked at me incredulously and said, are you crazy? We can't even decide on a definition of intelligence for people. You want to start defining it for plants? 
You know, intelligence is one of these words which everyone has an innate understanding of what they mean, but there's no real definition of it. You know, is IQ intelligence? Is being able to pick up on information intelligence? Is adaptation intelligence? Um, so I don't even want to start using that word. You know, I, I on April Fool's this year, I made a, a plant intelligence test. <laughs> um, it's online. People can look at it in my blog on um on the dailyplant.com and you can actually take the, you can test your plants and I can actually come up with a metric that has a Gaussian bell curve uh, distribution that showed that there are smart plants and stupid plants, but this is all based on definitions that I defined as intelligence. So it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. So I don't think the question is whether plants are intelligent or not, because we don't even know, can't define that term. The question is, are plants complex and they're incredibly complex. Are they communicating? Yes, they're communicating. Are they adaptive? Completely adaptive. Are they aware of their environment? Definitely. If that is your definition of intelligence, then I'll accept that plants are intelligent. But it doesn't really help me scientifically to use that term at all because there's no test I can use. You know, I'm not going to start giving them an IQ test. Exactly. Exactly. But they do do some amazing things. And uh, one of the fascinating things I was very unaware of was the fact that plants, when they're tipped upside down, actually try and correct themselves and change their positioning. And I just couldn't even uh, believe that that happens. And I'd love to see it. First of all, you can do it. Great. Take take your potted plant at home, put it on its side, and you can even put it in a dark uh, closet so that it's not the light that's involved, and you'll see that it'll bend up. The, the shoots always bend up, and the roots always bend down. And that goes on all over the world like that in every plant species. But there's only one place that it doesn't happen. And that would be space. In outer space, on yeah. the space station. In the space station, the roots and the shoots have nowhere, no idea where to go. Daniel, it's been amazing speaking with you. I really have enjoyed this chat so much. And in terms of this book, it's just so fascinating and engaging and beautifully illustrated as well. And just to finish out this discussion, in terms of you and your passion for this, it's obvious that it's something you're so engaged with and excited about. And obviously you have some great colleagues over there at Tel Aviv University. But where do you want to take your research and, and where do you think the most exciting things are going at the moment in terms of what you've been looking at in this book? Well, the, the challenge for plant biologists in general is how do plants integrate all of this information? You know, the, we talked about plant awareness of the light environment, of the smells, of gravity, of being touched, of temperature, of the amount of light, all of these things. It's all integrated, as we talked about, to yield a plant exquisitely adapted to its own microenvironment. And it integrates all of these signals without a brain, without a neurosystem. How does it do that? We, you know, we're just starting to be able to answer that question now. That is, I think, the key question for plant biologists in general. And it behooves us. It's, it's, it's incredibly important for us to understand that so that we will be able to utilize this information in agriculture with the huge growth in world population and the huge changes in the environment that are man-made, if we don't understand how a plant responds to its environment so that we can utilize this information in agriculture, um, we're going to find ourselves in a big problem in 10, 20, 30 years. 
Exactly. It's so, so relevant to now with climate change being such an urgent problem. Daniel, thank you so much for spending your time with me. Thanks very much. That was my interview with Daniel Shamovitz. And we were discussing his book, What a Plant Knows, A Field Guide to the Senses. And it is out through Scribe Publications here in Australia. And uh, Daniel is uh, an academic and he is also the Dean at the Faculty of Life Sciences at Tel Aviv University. So uh, he's certainly at the forefront of this science and so passionate about it. It's so great to hear his enthusiasm for plants and I hope you enjoyed that interview. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.